Revelation chapter 3, let's begin in verse 14. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, and the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. And as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we just thank you for your great love and thank you for revealing all of this to your church, Lord, and giving us this great privilege of revelation. We thank you for what you revealed, Lord, in your word. We know you have very specific thoughts and intents behind these verses. We know that every jot and tittle won't pass away. And we thank you that it will outlive the heavens and the earth. And we're grateful, Lord, that there's a a blessing that you reveal is associated with us corporately, publicly reading and learning this together. And I pray that you would help us to hear your voice. We never pray, Lord, for your word to be powerful. We're thankful it already is that. But we do pray for our hearts, that you would help our hearts to receive your revelation and to be willing to be doers of the word, not hearing it only deceiving ourselves. So we pray that sanctification would continue to happen through your word today. We pray that your spirit would be our teacher. We pray, Father, we wouldn't be, help us to not go through this as some religious exercise, disconnecting our hearts from you. Help us, Lord, to have our hearts open and pliable for you to mold and shape. And we pray, Lord, you use these verses to make us more like Jesus. We thank you for the privilege of having a changed life come from your spirit. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Today we are finishing the second section of the book of Revelation. You may remember in back in chapter 1, when we were back in chapter 1 and verse 19, John was provided an outline of the things that he, were, he was to, to write down. And he said, write the things which you have seen and the things which, you, which are and the things which will take place after this. So the things that John had seen, he recorded in chapter 1, uh, specifically seeing the, a, a revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But also he said, write down the things that are, which constitutes chapters 2 and 3. So we're about to finish chapter 3 today, so we're finishing that second section. Then we get to begin, Lord willing, next week in chapter 4, the third section, which constitute all the things that happen after the things that are, or the things that happen after the church age. We won't see the church again until, I think, chapter 19. So chapters 4 through 19, we're not going to see the church 
And I believe that's one of the reasons why the rapture, the pre-tribulation rapture, is, is a, a valid and correct position biblically. Now, Jesus has been speaking to, to seven very specific churches. As I've mentioned in the past, there were hundreds, if not thousands, of churches in Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey at this time. But he chose seven very specific churches because, as we know, seven is the number of fulfillment or completion. And he knew that everything he would have to say to these very specific churches is everything that every church would need to hear throughout the church age, in addition to, of course, the rest of the New Testament and, and what they would need to hear to, to be the kind of church or to, and to watch out for the things that they need to watch out for to be the church that God had called us to be. And so it encapsulates all of that. And I do want to remind all of us, myself included, that Jesus is assessing every church. It's his church. I can't say that enough. And every time I hear other believers say it's his church, it brings me great joy to hear that. Because there, if it's his church and he's building it, which means he hasn't called me to build it and hasn't called me to, to grow it or whatever, he calls me to preach the gospel. That's what he calls us to do. And to build up the church. And I get all kinds of junk mail telling me how to build my church. And, and all those things are absolutely, in my view, worthless. So here we have um, this assessment of this church. So Jesus has already told us he walks in the midst of the seven churches. He's already told us he holds the seven stars in his right hand. And he's told us those seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, which are the head elders of those churches. So he is assessing every church. He cares about what happens. He hasn't left it up to the leaders to determine what the church is to be about. He's prescribed a very uh, specific template according to Acts 2.42 and Ephesians 4, of what the purpose of the church is, how it's supposed to function, but more than just theological or our philosophy of ministry, he assesses how we treat one another. He assesses what we say, what we don't say, our motivation, how self-consumed we are. This church has a lot to, to, to reveal about self-consumption. So we're going to see that, and, but it, it's, a, it's a thing of sobriety. It's supposed to produce sobriety in our hearts, that he is watching and looking at everything. How we reach out to the poor. How we treat widows and orphans. How we're willing to preach the gospel or not. If we're short-circuiting the cycle of going out and preaching the gospel, winning the lost, bringing them back in so they can be made in disciples, so they can go out and preach the gospel, that's, a, that's cyclical in nature. We can stop that cycle at any time, any one of us, by refusing to preach the gospel. His aim is to make disciples so that we can be mature enough to reproduce and to preach the gospel so that the lost can be won. So he's, he's, he notices when we don't do that. He has opinions about all those things. And that, that should produce sobriety in any one of our hearts. It's not just our individual lives. It's corporately as well. It's all of that. Now, a little bit about the city of Laodicea. It was named after a specific ruler's wife. I'd tell you his name, but you won't remember it, and I won't either, so it doesn't matter. It was, it was named after someone's wife who was named that. But the word is, brought, is, is made up of two specific words, which I think is very relevant to everything that the Lord would have to say to this church. It's made up of two words. One is laos, which means people, and dosia, which means to rule or have rights over. And I believe this is noteworthy because Everything that these uh, believers were about were about themselves ruling over their own lives and being the Lord over their own lives. And so Jesus is going to address very specific things related to being self-absorbed, 
Because we don't, when we rule over our own lives, we don't become other-centered all of a sudden. <laughs> it's not like that's our number one approach to ruling ourselves. Let's be, you know, concerned about God and others. That's not the flesh. The flesh is inward. We focus in on ourselves. So this city was was a very well-known city. It's one of three cities that were very close together. There was Colossae. You remember Paul wrote to the Colossians. It was Colossae up the road, and then around the corner, kind of a little bit different direction, was um, Hierapolis. And those three cities had a close relationship with one another. Now, Laodicea was famous for four things, supremely. They were famous for wealth. They were famous for black wool. They were famous for eye salve. And they were famous for bad water. So I want to go into a little, little bit of those things just because it's relevant to what the church is dealing with. He actually references some of those things uh, as he writes to them. So their wealth, they're very famous for their wealth. In A.D. 60, there was a massive earthquake, destroyed the city. The Roman uh, government came in and said, we will finance the rebuilding of Laodicea. And they said, no thanks. We'll take care of it. When have you ever seen a city refuse federal fundage? Is fundage a word? I don't know. Funding. Funding. There you go. So they were so self-dependent and so wealthy that they could actually do that. It had a reputation that Laodicea is in need of nothing. And that's actually what the church was saying about themselves. So they had that reputation. It was also famous for black wool. They would breed a type of sheep that, I guess they're all black sheep. <laughs> you know, they're really disobedient little sheep there. They're all black sheep. But they had this, this black wool that they produced, and uh, they would make these different garments. And there was this one outer garment they would make from this black wool that was very, very well known. And, th- and they w- were able to receive lots of uh, money as a result of selling it. So they're famous for that. They're almost also famous for this eye salve or this ointment that they would use. There was a medical school there, and they, they produced this powder. They would grind down, and they would put it in little capsules, and when you combined water or oil with, the, with that powder, you could make this, this salve that you could put in your eyes, and it supposedly healed a lot of uh, eye infections. So they were well known for that. And then lastly, their bad water. The river that they were next to would kind of dry up in the summertime, and so they were dependent upon Colossae and Hierapolis to provide water. And so this is the physical arrangement with Colossae and Hierapolis. Colossae had, was famous for very, very cold water, ice-cold water. And so they had this aqueduct that went all the way down to Laodicea. Then Hierapolis had these hot springs. I don't know if you've ever been to Marietta Hot Springs, you know, and there's just super, super hot water just coming right out of the ground there, um, Yellowstone Park and so forth as those as well. But they would also had another aqueduct that went to Laodicea from there. And so what would happen is the cold water would come from Colossae, and by the time it got to Laodicea, it wouldn't be cold anymore. It had warmed up a little bit, so it would be lukewarm. And then the water that would come from Hierapolis was that hot spring. It would cool and by the time it got to Laodicea. And so in the summertime, all they had to really to drink was lukewarm water. And so he's going to make reference to all of those things. The church of Laodicea was likely planted by one of Paul's uh, disciples, Epaphras. You may remember him. And we're not told that Paul actually visited there to Laodicea. He, he, maybe he did. 
but uh, we know that he knew about Laodicea. He mentions Laodicea a couple times in his epistle to the Colossians, and I want to read one of those verses. In Colossians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, Paul wrote this by the Spirit. He said, Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and Nyphus and the church that is in his house. Now when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. So there was an epistle written to Laodicea that we don't have. But then Paul said, make sure that they read, the Laodiceans, that they read this epistle to the, to the church of Colossae. So that tells us that they were aware of all the content in Colossians, which is very important to know because this is 35 years later now. So they had all this great teaching related to who Christ is, about putting off the old man, putting on the new man, and all these things that, that uh, they were not obeying and not walking in at this point in time. Lastly, related to the church of Laodicea, it's one of two churches where Jesus has nothing good to say about them. And, and that's sobering as well. He sees everything. He's not going to say that there's good things when they're not there. He's going to be honest. And he doesn't say there's anything good that, that, that he can commend him for. Him. And we know his heart. We know how gracious he is. We know how loving God is. If there is one little shred of something that he could have said about them, he would have. But he doesn't. And that's noteworthy. But one thing that I do want to mention before we get into the meat of all of this is that we'll see that Jesus is extending love and grace and hope even to these believers even to them, even though he can't say anything about them, even though they uh, you know, are lukewarm in their faith and so forth, even though he says the things that he says, he's still always encouraging and being gracious, extending hope to them and calling them to repent. And I want to note that because it's a very important for us to see the Lord Jesus' heart throughout this whole entire letter. Because we get discouraged when we fail, and every one of us fails. And we think that somehow God doesn't want anything to do with us when we're not doing well. And I know if someone has a handle on grace when they go towards the Lord when they're struggling instead of going away from the Lord. If they're going away from the Lord when they're struggling, and we've all been there, they don't understand grace. You fall towards the Lord. You don't fall away from Him. You fall towards Him. When, you, when you're dirty, you go into the shower to get clean. You're not, you're not afraid to go into the shower. You know that that's the way, how you get clean. And, and the Lord Jesus is, has a ministry kind of like a hospital does, but it's a spiritual hospital. And you don't have people that are wounded say, okay, I know the emergency room. They don't want to see me, which may be true, actually. But, I mean, in terms of what they're supposed to be doing, you know, I know they don't want to see me. I'm going to wait till I get better on my own. But you have no capacity to get better on your own. You have to go into that emergency room. And he always has this loving heart that's being extended, wooing us to come back because he's gracious and he's full of grace and truth. And so just, I want that to wash over our hearts, that we need to fall towards him. We need to go boldly into the throne room of grace. And we will get help in our time of need because he is gracious. Now notice he begins with the self-description of himself in verse 14. He says, And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I want to remind us, 
and even maybe reveal to people who weren't here, that when he gives his self-description, it's always something related to something they've lost sight of about him that's related to what they're in the middle of, or they need to increase their knowledge of what they already know. And so that's, that's what we're going to kind of look at here as we look at this verse. He starts with the amen, and amen means truth. When Jesus said, most assuredly I say to you, or in the, in the King James, so I remember I said veritas means truth. He would say verily, verily I say to you. And in Greek, it's amen, amen. It means truth. So he is the truth. He is the amen. And they were not treating him as the truth. They were not treating him and his word as the truth, as the standard. They had come up with their own standard of what spiritual health and vitality looks like. So he's reminding them, I am the truth. I am that which needs to be measured off of. I am that person that defines holiness. There's no greater definition of holiness than the Lord Jesus. But he also says, notice, faithful and true witness. He's the standard. Notice that there's the word the there. These things says the, amen, the faithful and true witness. Singular. You know, in Greek, you can have the word the be plural, but that's not what this is here. This is singular. He is the singular, faithful, and true witness. And you might miss it, but if you look carefully, if you see why he's revealing this to them, he's encouraging them because he's saying to them, look, you're not a good good witness right now. You're anything but a good witness. I am the singular, true, and faithful witness. I am the definition of truth. I am the definition of what faithfulness looks like. And without looking to me, you will, don't have a shot. You don't have a fighting chance about being in the truth and walking in the truth and being faithful. So look to me. Without him, none of us can be holy. None of us can walk in the truth. So he's, he's ex- already extending grace to them. But then he says, the beginning of the creation of God. Now the cultists will try to say that this is showing that Jesus was created. They will say that the Father created the Son and he used the Son to create everything else. And they say, see, this is one of the scriptures. The other one is in Colossians when, when he talks about him being the, first, the firstborn. But the problem with that is if you just open up just one Greek dictionary, you'll see that this word has to do with being the beginner of the creation of God or the originator of the creation of God. I remember when my wife was a loan officer, you know, there was this a loan origination fee. You know, there's an originator of a loan. And, and, and it's the beginner or the, the one that is beginning everything. And so I believe what he's saying here to these Laodiceans, because I don't think they had real, really struggling with the deity of Christ. They could have been. But I think more than that, or at least in addition to that, I think that he's focusing on their affections. The problem really wasn't theological with them. The problem was their hearts. And he's dealing with their affections, their, their focus on materialism and selfism. And I believe that they were abandoning the superior for the inferior. They're focusing on the, create, the creation in terms of their wealth and their materialism, what they have, and, and, and then deciding that they are spiritually healthy as a result of that, instead of focusing on the creator. So, they, you know, they're all focused on, this, on the temporal, on the physical, and he's saying, don't focus on any of that. Focus on the one that made all of that. And so again, revealing something about himself that is applicable to their struggle. Now notice Jesus goes right to his rebuke in verses 15 and 16. He says, I know your works. 
that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So just like every one of these letters of these seven churches, he begins with, I know your works. And I could pass over that after we covered the first church. And we all know that. that He's looking at our works, so why do I need to focus on it every time? Well, Jesus knew that all these letters would be passed around and so forth. He said it every single time to every single church. He said all these, many of these things over and over again, and I have no problem with repeating things. We need it. So he's looking at our works. Works are important. And, and we focus a lot on we're saved by grace, which we are. So sometimes we only think about works in the context of receiving salvation. We know we're not saved by our works, so we're done with even thinking about works. But we're told in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, that he created us for good works. He created us for good works. He has expectations related to our behavior. And he wants us to bear good fruit that he produces through our lives. He wants us to to let our light so shine before men that they may glorify our Father in heaven. And so in our selfish, self-consumed culture, when it's all about us and what's in it for me, He's constantly telling us to love one another. He's constantly telling us to watch out for other people's needs. He's constantly telling us to not focus not only on our interests, but the interests of others all the time. And we can never say that enough. So he says, I know your works, which means that he knows the lack thereof too. He knows those things. Then he says that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. Now, again, we've looked at the background. They knew exactly what he's talking about. They knew that he knew that they had lukewarm water (laughs) for much of the year. No one likes to drink lukewarm water, really. I mean, I guess maybe some people do, but usually you want what's valuable is having really cold water or really hot water. And so he's saying to them, that's how you are spiritually. What you get to drink in the summer months when your river dries up, that's what I get to drink spiritually every single day by being the head of the church. And and he says, "I I don't want that for you. You know, at least when people are cold, at least there's clarity. At least they're being, don't you love someone they're just honest with just their unbelief? And they're just, you know, they're, they're thinking that you're going to melt as a Christian if they say that they're an atheist. And you're like, oh no, don't tell me. I can't handle, I can't handle unbelief. What am I going to do? You know, or something. And you're just like, okay, you're denying the obvious. You know, how can I help you? You know, and, and so, but when they're honest with the Lord, when they're honest with, with their objections, when they're honest with their need, that's really it. And these, these believers, they weren't honest with their true assessment. He says, I'd rather have you cold or hot. This word lukewarm is the only time it, it appears in the New Testament. And they had a couple different words in Greek for lukewarm. There was one word that described water that goes from cold to lukewarm, so it heats up. And there was another Greek word that described something, water that was hot, that over time cooled and became lukewarm. And the one that he chose, which one do you think he chose in this? The second one. He chose the one that was, you used to be hot and now you've cooled. He doesn't say you used to be cold and now you're a little bit warm, like you're, you're, you're making progress the right direction. He's saying, no, you're going backwards. That's the Greek word that he uses there. And so we can, we can say, well, what does God expect from me? He, he wants me to be hot for him. He wants me to be just on fire 
for him. You know, it's easy to have things cool in any of our hearts related to spiritual things. I walk with the Lord now for 24 years, almost 25 years, somewhere in there. And there's been plenty of times when I've been hotter or colder or lukewarm or whatever. And he wants us to be hot for him. That's what he wants. Now notice in verse 16, one of the hardest things ever uttered or for us to hear that Jesus has said, especially to a church, he says, verse 16, So then, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth. What is it to vomit? Do we have to struggle with this? Um, I hate that. <laughs> I hate going through that. You know, sometimes some people, when they get sick, they will be sick an extra three days just so they don't have to vomit. They know if they get it out and all of that and they go through that, their sickness can be shorter, but I don't care. I hate it so much that I'm willing to be sick for another whatever day or two or three or whatever. But when you vomit something, it's, it's like the violent expulsion of something in the body that's harmful for the body. That's what vomit is. I remember when my son Henry was a baby. We called him the projectile vomiter. He could not keep a feeding down. And he had good aim. I mean, he just, I mean, I'm like that. And it wasn't even closely, you know, even nearly as frustrating to me as it was for my wife. But he just could not keep anything down. He was sick. And so that, that is the picture. Jesus is saying, There's, you are in my body and your lukewarmness is making me sick. It's making my body sick. It's damaging to my body. It's hurting my body. I want to, you're making me nauseous. I want to vomit you out. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that, you know, we're apostatized or, he, you know, all of those things? I don't know what it means. I just know that the, it's serious. And I know that it, the solution, it's like Pastor Chuck would always say, what does it mean in John 15? If we don't abide in him, you know, we're cast out and the branches are burned. He goes, I don't know, but just abide in him. You don't have to worry about it. You know, I kind of like that. So let's just, we don't have to worry about it. We just be uh, hot for the Lord. You know, so I'm not trying to cast out anyone's salvation. I'm just saying it's making, our whole lives want to be spent blessing him and being a blessing to him. And when you love someone, you take the time to make them a meal. You, you, you want to bless them. And then if they throw up, hey, who's made a meal here that your guests have thrown up? That wouldn't be good. Maybe you don't want to admit that. I don't blame you. But if that happened, you'd feel horrible. I mean, the last thing we want is to make the Lord Jesus nauseous and sick and want to vomit. So it could be said, though, well, maybe they're just kind of melancholy and they're kind of lukewarm about everything. No, because he gets to what they're really on fire for right here. He says, verse 17, because you say I am rich have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Naked. Anytime I see self-deception in, in, in the Bible, it scares me from my own heart because all of us are capable of self-deception. That's why we need the Bible. That's why we need one another. That's why we need to exhort one another daily, especially as we see the day approaching. We need truth coming our way. The last thing we need to be is defensive and attack the person that's trying to exhort us. And that happens to me all the time as a pastor. I get rejected. 
because I'm trying to help someone and tell them the truth. And, and there can be self-deception. And the most loving thing you can do is tell someone the truth when, just like we do with our kids, when something's hurting them, we tell them the truth. That, that love of, of wanting the best for them supersedes what they think about us. At least it's supposed to. If we want to be our kids' pals and have them like us all the time, we're not going to be very good parents. Well, God wouldn't be a good parent if he didn't do the same. So they redefine the definition of spirituality here. Their, their thought was material wealth equaled spiritual wealth. You remember the rich young ruler? You know, he is wealthy, he's young, he's a ruler. He's, yeah, ladies, I mean, a great candidate, right? Just this little problem, this little oopsie, he doesn't know God problem. And he comes to the Lord Jesus and he wants to know how to inherit eternal life. And Jesus, knowing his heart, knows that he has a love of money. And he has that as his God. So he zeroes in on that. Because when we take a U-turn in the road of life, we're going the other direction from everything that used to be our false gods. And he tells them, you know, to give all to the poor, and he goes away sad and so forth. And then he says this. Jesus, it says that Jesus, when Jesus saw that he became sorrowful, he said, how hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, this is very important, who then can be saved? See what they were doing? They were equating wealth and worldly success with spirituality. And that's, there's a false teaching today, you know, the, you know that the, blab, the blab it and grab it theology, you know, where, you, you know, you confess certain things and it's always God's will that we're uh, healthy and it's always God's will that we're wealthy. And if you don't have those things as much as you want those things and you're not confessing God's word enough or whatever, and that's false. So for us, maybe we don't see ourselves as rich, but we are. You compare ourselves to the rest of this world, we live higher than 98% probably of this world. We live at a higher level. And so we may not see ourselves that way, but, but think of it as just kind of focusing on the physical plane. That looking at the physical plane, how my life is going, how well it's going, how well my job's going, how well, you know, all these things that are going in our lives, we can assess our spiritual health by that standard, and that's not necessarily a, a barometer for spiritual health. There are lots of churches that are wealthy that have massive budgets. And Jesus is knocking, trying to get in. Nothing looks like anything that the Scripture lays out for a church. They have all kinds of money. But it's not just uh, the, how a church functions. It's people. There are people that I've met so many times. They're wealthy. They don't think they have any need in the world. And they may add a few things to their existing life, spiritual things, little kind of spiritual rabbit's foot. You know, just add a little God to my life and... He's saying, lose your life daily and follow me. Take up your cross daily and follow me. That's the life that God's called us to. So what can happen is we can start measuring our lives and our spiritual health differently than how God measures it. That's why we have to know his word so well. Because he can have an entirely different assessment of our lives. Look at this, this church. Do you think that they had this, the same assessment that Jesus had? Do you? I mean... And I want you to just think about something. When you, how many people have you met that claim to be believers that have an idea of how well they're doing that is, how, lines up with Scripture versus the people that know their lives don't line up with Scripture? 
Usually people have this idea that they're doing better than they are. I mean, myself included. I probably think that I'm doing better than I am. That's why I need God's word in my life. That's why I need other leaders in my life, other people in my life. I need my wife in my life, of course. And I need to have that truth be spoken to me about my true condition because I can judge myself differently than what God's, how God's word judges me. And I can be lukewarm and not even know it. That's why it scares me to see this. Because I know any of us can fall into the same trap. We can think that we're doing great. We should ask other people, how do you think I'm doing? How do you think I'm doing spiritually? What, what are some ways, you know, a, a few months ago, I offered to the men. I went to the men's ministry and I said, I'm available to you one-on-one. You just let me know. We'll meet together. I will listen to how I'll, I'll ask questions I'll, I'll and not obviously in an unhealthy way but just I'll listen to what, how your life's going I mean I'll just kind of like run your life by what because I don't know every detail that's going on of course and I will help you I will try to I will listen and I you know not one man took me up on that not one man took me up on that and that's a shame because you have someone that's willing that's willing to tell you the truth and and your life will be better off and you don't take advantage of it. And, and so not a word of condemnation to anybody. I'm just saying that you want to have every opportunity to have someone speak into your life to tell you the truth. Now notice what they said. He says, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. Now you, in that word you there, because you say, that's not y'all. I mean, in the Greek, it could be you all, but it's not. It's you singular. Jesus is speaking to individuals here, even though he's speaking to a church. And he says, you, because you say, I am rich. So it's very personal. Self-deception is very personal. And notice they say, I am rich. They're not saying we're rich. <laughs> I am rich. I am because not everyone was rich in that, in that congregation, but they're focused on where? On themselves. I am rich, have become wealthy. Notice they weren't always wealthy. He uses the word become there. This isn't old money. This is, they, in, they worked or whatever they did to get this money, they become wealthy, and now they say, I have need of nothing. Dangerous place to be. Dangerous. To be focused on yourself, to be focused on you. I mean, we fight against it all the time in our culture. In other cultures where the family unit is so valued and groups of people are so valued, they don't have the same struggle that we have. We're so individualistic. And the Bible communicates that we're a larger whole, primarily, who happen to be individual members. And we think we're primarily individual members that happen to be part of a larger whole. But again, Scripture is the test. Scripture is the the reality there. And so the true assessment of how they really were Notice he says, wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. They were spiritually all those things. That tells me that they can think that they're doing great spiritually, but really in reality they're doing horribly. That's a nightmare to be thinking that spiritually I'm doing way worse than how I actually am. And Jesus is trying to break through self-deception. What test do you use to measure yourself? What test do I use to measure myself? of how well I'm doing spiritually. Think, think through right now. Well, I go to church. I read my Bible. I share the Lord with people. I uh, 
offer first fruits to the Lord related to my finances. I um, serve other people. I mean, you can go down this list in, from the scriptures, and that grid is something we should be concerned about and looking at and growing because there's this deception, again, that it's up to me to grow as much as I want to grow, that somehow God has left that up to me. You know, you can go as far as you want in the Lord. If you don't want to go very far, you don't have to. Where is that in the Bible? If I'm taking up my cross daily and following him, I'm going wherever he leads. The disciples didn't say when he first called them, okay, wait, 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 what's the contract here? What are the writers in this contract? What's the agreement? Where are we going? How far are we going to go? How how long are we going to be there? They didn't decide any of that. And any given day that they woke up, they had no control over where they were going to go, who they were going to talk to, what they were going to be doing related to ministry. They had no control over that. And they grew as much as God wanted them to grow. So all of our hearts should be, Lord, however you want to have me grow, I want that. I want to grow at the pace you want me to grow. I want to continue to advance spiritually. And if we're going backwards, of course he doesn't want that. But we need to go and grow as fast as he wants us to grow. He hasn't left it up to us. Now, notice Jesus' solution in verse 18. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. So first of all, we see he's offering counsel to those that weren't doing well. He still wants to speak and help us, even though we're not doing well. Let's just notice that first of all. But he says, come buy for me. And it's not something we earn. It's talking about he's the source of it. Come buy for me gold refined. They had plenty of gold already. But we're talking gold refined in the fire. Spiritual wealth. Spiritual riches. Come to me and focus on all that I've given you in Christ. And, and that, you may, that you may be rich. In other words, that your awareness will be that you are rich. Because they already were rich. They're, they were positionally in Christ. And white garments. Remember, they sold that black wool. So he's saying, come buy white garments from me. And and in other words, get my righteousness from me, my standard of holiness. Let me produce holiness through your life that you may be clothed because they're naked, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. See, their spiritual nakedness was going to be revealed in due time. And he's trying to prevent that. He's putting up a roadblock for them. They've probably already passed through many roadblocks already. He's putting up even a bigger one and a stronger one with hope attached to it and showing them this isn't what I have for you, going the direction you've been going. And anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Again, they were famous for that eye salve. But this is a spiritual ointment that helps them see spiritually. To focus just on the physical plane shows us that we're blind. You can have 20-20 vision. And see super well the physical plane and still be blind as a bat spiritually. And eternal, eternal things are spiritual things. Physical things are temporal. So he's giving them great hope. And then one of the most amazing things Jesus ever said in verse 19. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. What's interesting is that this word love is not agape here. This is phileo. This is like a fondness. This is like, you know, we talk about phileo being a brotherly love, a fondness, and so forth. It's not an inferior love. It's just a different kind of love. And, and we're told in John chapter 16, verse 27, he says, For the Father himself loves you, phileos you, because you have 
phileoed me, and I believe that I, have, that I came forth from God. So maybe some of us need to hear today that God is fond of you. He likes you. He doesn't just love you because he's love. He likes you. He's fond of you. And he says, as many as I'm fond of, I rebuke and chasten. Just like Hebrews chapter 12, the writer of the book of Hebrews talks about don't despise chastening. For if you are not chastened, you're not disciplined, you'd be illegitimate children. So he's saying, look, I love you. I care about you. I want what's best for you. I don't want you to be lukewarm. It's not best for you. It's not best for me, the kingdom, of course, but it's not best for you. I want you to be hot for me. And so he tells them what to do. Therefore, be zealous and repent. So we're we're called to repent. If that's our hearts today, if we're lukewarm in our hearts, the solution is we need to repent and turn back to him. And he says, be zealous. Sometimes people say, I don't want to be one of those zealous types. Again, it's not up to us. He says, I want you to be zealous. Jesus wants every Christian to be zealous for him. What does that look like? Does it look like some crazy person on the street corner yelling condemnation at people and that kind of zeal? No. It means someone that's serious about the Lord. It looks like Jesus. There's no one that's more zealous for God than the Lord Jesus in his public ministry. He was very, very zealous. And so that's our example. Now, another statement of grace and love, he says in verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Now, we quote the scripture all the time related to evangelism, and I'm not saying it's not applicable because God is knocking on the door of our hearts when we're hearing the gospel. And he does want us to invite him in. But the, the context is talking about a church that's lukewarm. And, and Jesus is on the outside knocking. He says, behold. That means to consider carefully, to think about it, to meditate on it. Like in the Psalms when they would say, Selah. It was to read the, that psalm or that verse in the psalm and then meditate on it, think about it. He says, behold, I am at the door. I stand at the door and I knock. And that word knock means to knock gently and consistently. Can't we relate to that in our walk? Consistently knocking. If we don't hear that knock someday, that's danger. That knock is happening. And we keep listening to it. We keep hearing it. And he's gently knocking. He's a gentleman. He doesn't just barge in our house. That door has a doorknob on one side of that door. It's on the inside. And he's just waiting for us to open, to hear that voice, to recognize that it's him. He said, my sheep hear my voice. And then at a moment in time, we open that door and he's there. And what's interesting to me about this verse is that he's initiating it. He doesn't say, come to my door and knock. That would be totally appropriate for him to say, hey, come to my door. I'm I'm there all the time. Come there. I'm waiting for you. You come to my door and knock and I'll open it to you. He doesn't say that. He just, just like Zacchaeus, he invites us over, he invites himself over to our house. And he comes in and he's knocking, he's initiating in that. And look, again, look at the Father's heart here. Look at God's heart. He's initiating something to people that are lukewarm. He's initiating to people that are carnal, to people that are self-consumed, to people that are materialistic. He doesn't give up on them. He just says, I want a fellowship. Because that's what he says. Look at the rest of the verse. He who opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. That is not insignificant. That has great meaning. When you think of 
that time in that culture, when they would eat food together, it would, they, they believed like a mystical union was happening between the two parties. That's why the Jews never wanted to eat with the Gentiles. They didn't want to have any union with them. <laughs> and the Gentiles did plenty of things to deserve, you know, or to cause people to not want to dine with them. There's fault to go around. But they didn't, that was such a thing of intimacy to come in and dine, to share food together, to have that closeness and that intimacy. He is coming into their home. And, and, and he wants that communion, that closeness there. That, that, and, and one of the things that's passed over so many times that I saw this week, he says, I will come into him and dine with him. And the last four words, look at that. And he with me. What does that mean? When he says, I will come into him and dine with him, he's talking about how, the, how we would receive it if he came into our house. He's talking about us being blessed, that we will dine with him. We will commune with him our hearts will be blessed we will engage him and and enjoy it and he could have just left it at that and we'd be totally fine with that but look at his heart he says and he with me i will enjoy i will enjoy your fellowship i will enjoy your communion with you and that's to people that are lukewarm that's to people that are far from him that he's trying to get in that church he's trying to get in their hearts he's trying to get in their lives they don't want anything to do with him at this point they're just so focused with themselves they're so wrapped up in themselves and in their own heads and he comes in and says i'm initiating this relationship and i want to come back to what i where i was with you at one point and not only will you'll be blessed but i will be blessed think about that love and then the promise to the overcomer Verse 21, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Now, when John heard this, I'm sure that this just really blew him away. There was a time where he wanted to sit on the right there, the the right side of the throne. And he even he and his brother got his mom, their mom to get involved, to try to get Jesus to say you know, well, oh, sure, I'll, play, I'll put him there. And here he says, anyone who overcomes can sit with me on my throne and overcome. Can you get any closer than this? Can you get any more intimate? Can you have a heart be extended any more than God's heart towards us when we're not doing well? Do you see how much he wants to draw us close to him when we're not doing well? Can we just please remember, myself included, to go towards him when we're struggling instead of going away from him? That's what he wants from us. And we need to spiritually discern it. He says in verse 22, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Spiritually discern it. Spiritually hear it. Compare Scripture with Scripture. We have the capacity to do that. We have the Holy Spirit inside of us. So huge revelation for us. So let me just summarize the lessons from each one of these churches. The church of Ephesus question is how we left our first love church of smyrna are we willing to do what he's called us to do no matter the circumstances and even get persecuted as a result of it church of pergamos are we compromising god's word the church of thyatira have we allowed any false teaching to attach itself to our lives church of sardis are we depending upon the holy spirit in our service to the lord the church of philadelphia are we walking through the open door even though we have little strength we have confidence that if he closes a door, that it's him closing it because if he closes it, no man can open it. So even though we're weak, 
He wants us to have boldness of any open door that he opens that we can walk through it. And he acknowledges that serving the Lord even means weakness at times. Lastly, Laodicea, how we become lukewarm. We need to let all these things wash over our hearts, think about where we're at, and and know that his heart behind all the instruction in these books, in these letters, are for our benefit because he loves us and wants us to be more Christ-like. I'm really excited about chapter 4, but man, did I enjoy chapters 2 and 3.